This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to another hedge fund manager, famous for his out-of-the-box ideas, Harry Kupperman, also known as Cuppy. Cuppy is the founder of Praetorian Capital, and like me, he's always on the lookout for great asymmetric investment opportunities. So, Cuppy, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and Praetorian Capital? Oh, wow. Where should I start? I'm an investor who looks for asymmetric opportunities. Uh, I feel like uh, most of the equity markets are roughly fairly priced or slightly overpriced. And the opportunities are in the weird, uh, esoteric, funny sectors of the world that no one's following or they have this yuck factor to them that uh, forces people not to want to look at them. And I feel like a lot of these potentially have big upside. You know, I'm, not the one, I'm not the type of guy who says, I'll buy this stock at 10 because I think it's going to 12. I'm, I'm the type of guy who says, let's buy this stock at 10 or whatever because we think it's going to 100. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if you protect your downside, you get enough of those that go up. And I, I write a blog, Adventures in Capitalism, where I talk about what I'm buying and what I'm investing in and what I'm thinking about. And we've had some pretty big winners there over the last few years, lots of doubles and triples. So that's me. I also run a hedge fund. It's an old school hedge fund, uh, six to 12 names, concentrated, all asymmetric trades, hopefully uncorrelated. And we're really looking to put up good numbers over any rolling three-year period month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter volatility just doesn't matter to me. Uh, if you want to long, learn more about my hedge fund, go to precap.com, but uh, I'm not going to talk about it here just because uh, you know you have those marketing rules. Got it. Thanks for that. So, uh, how are you seeing the markets today? Because um, everyone says it's a bubble and it's about to burst, but it only gets bigger. <laughs> Do you see a crash or will central banks try to avert this and print even more money? What are your thoughts on the markets today? So I really thought we were going to crash this uh, summer, fall. I mean, I, I think the market thought we were going to crash and we didn't crash. And why did we not crash? It's because they did not QE3, 4, whatever. I lost track which number it is. Uh, but that that when you print money, you can prop up the markets. I do think we're still going to crash. Uh, I think there's two factors driving that. You know, on, on one side, you know, I think the Ponzi sector is bigger than people think it is. <laughs> and the Ponzi sector is kind of freezing up, where if you're an owner of Ponzi stocks in the private world, you only put money in because you think there's some sucker who's going to buy it from you in an IPO or, you know, a secondary offering in, in the public markets. But what we've learned is that these things are worth a lot less than anyone thought. So to put money in, you have to put it in a discount to where you think it's going to price, which means that guys who already own the shares are going to take write-downs. And when, with debt in the system, no one wants a write-down. So you have this situation where no one wants to put new money in, and the existing investors don't really want to put more money in because you got to put you know billions of dollars a year into these things just to keep them going. And keeping them going just kind of means that they lose more money. So you have to put more money in. It's, it's this you know good after bad. So I, I really do think that uh, it might not be today or tomorrow, but the whole system is freezing up. And I think you're going to see a lot of capital. And coincidentally, I think you'll see that a lot of the jobs created, a lot of the house price, uh, you know, just a lot of the economy is tied to fake stock options and fake valuations in these things. 
And when people see the write-offs and, you know, you, you get a stock wrong, maybe it drops 20 or 30%. When you have a business that's structurally unprofitable, it's going to drop 100%. And dropping 100% from a multi-billion valuation is a lot of money times hundreds of these things. But the other thing I think is going to happen is you're going to see an uptick in inflation. And as inflation starts ticking up, and it already is ticking up, I really do think you'll see the central banks finally lose control of the process where they won't be able to keep stimulating. And it's not just stimulus, it's, it's incremental stimulus to keep the thing going. And if they can't keep stimulating and they slow down the stimulus or maybe even go in reverse again to stop the inflation, uh, I think you can have a world of pain. And I think the two things are going to kind of collide. You know, it wasn't a 2019. I've stopped out of my shorts and lost a couple hundred bips. N- no big deal. But I'll take another shot at it at some point. And I think we'll know pretty clearly when it's going to blow again or almost blow. Yeah, I had that impression late last year. But anyway, uh, now uh, you, you mentioned something interesting. And uh, one of the things I always thought of is that private markets are way more efficient than public ones, simply because you have two sides who are really well advised by professionals. But uh, yeah, well, this seems not to be the case anymore. Today, the private markets are valuing companies at much higher price than the public markets, maybe with the exception of Tesla. But anyway, this week, we were surprised with the offer from KKR to buy Walgreens at a price probably higher than $60 billion, making it the most expensive buyout ever. And there's the likes of SoftBank, which is buying everything at anything at whatever price. So to be more specific, what do you think will come out of this private equity mania? I think you have to look at why uh, there's a premium to private versus public. And I really do think it comes down to mark-to-market risk. You have pension funds and other allocators. And for a very long time, they've just bought an index fund or they've bought individual equities. But there's volatility to that. And increasingly, I think people don't want to show volatility of any type. The world is just, for whatever reason, decided that they're anti-volatility, and especially that institutional world. So rather than owning Walgreens on the stock market, where you're going to buy it at a cheap valuation in theory to what KKR is paying, people would rather buy it with a few turns more debt in a private market at a higher price. Why? Because it's now just going to be marked to a model, and the model is going to slowly increase every year. And so what you've done is you've eliminated the volatility of owning the stock. Oddly, you're actually paying more for it. Plus, you're increasing the risk because you're putting debt on it. But assuming Walgreens continues to grow or produce cash flow and amortize that debt, I mean, the IRR will be reasonably okay, I guess. But it still doesn't make any sense why no one wanted it last week at a cheaper price. Then the smart guys are willing to pay at a higher price. And it's all because of this uh, issue of a pension fund can't showing that volatility to uh, their uh, people who monitor the process, uh, their stakeholders, whoever they may be. Got it. Okay. And, uh, and and the likes of WeWork, do you have something to say? For- <laughs> I think uh, SoftBank will probably have to do another down round at some point in the future. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. I, I was laughing here because I saw the slide that Masayoshi's son put on the, on the screen uh, with the beta going down and then suddenly going up without any numbers. I say, oh yeah, that summarizes the markets today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that summarizes them. It looks like a free year b-school presentation they are selling the wave pool company though <laughs> so uh i have heard you say something really interesting in the long shorts uh, can you tell us what those are and why they can be multi-baggers yeah sure so you know i think we're having an economic crisis of some type i think uh, you're going to see increasing inflation like i said and an economic crisis that will be hard for the central banks to fight even though they'll probably try and i want to be uh taking advantage of that the problem with being short is if you print money you might be you you might crash upwards. If you think of Venezuela or Zimbabwe or 
Weimar Germany, those stock markets actually went up uh, thousands of percent. And that's because they just printed money to try to uh, sweep the crisis underneath. And that's the risk with being short. And we just saw that uh, in Q3 where they started printing money and all the stocks went up again. It's just a hard way to bet on an economic crisis. You know, you have your traditional methods like owning gold, but I think there's more than just gold. And I I think some of these uh, long shorts, the way to do it, because you might have multi-bagger upside potential where if they uh, don't print and the market crashes, these should still do very well because their businesses will do very well. If they uh, do print and the market crashes higher, I think these do well anyway and potentially even better. I just think this is the way you play uh, the economic crisis that is coming. Got it. Can you give us an example? So let me tell you, it's it's my uh, favorite one. It's a stock named Altasource. It's my second largest position. Uh, It's a default mortgage servicer. And most people don't know what that means. But that means if I don't pay my mortgage, starting when I'm 15 days late, they call me up. Cuppy, you haven't paid the mortgage. And then 30 days, they call me again. And then I get a letter in the mail. Then I get an angry letter in the mail. Then eventually, they start court proceedings. They try to evict me. They try to foreclose my property. Once they've gotten me out of there, they have to maintain my property, make sure I'm paying my insurance and my homeowner's condo fees and make sure that I'm paying my property taxes. And it's this bureaucratic messed up process. And because every state and every county has its own funny patchwork of laws, it's the sort of thing that banks don't really want to get involved in. Plus, banks... It's a bad look for a bank to be kicking out a single mother. So this this sort of thing gets outsourced to default mortgage servicers. And because of a lot of consolidation over the last few years, and remember, the number of defaults has declined every year for almost a decade now. Uh, it's been a horrible bear market. You've seen a lot of consolidation. You've seen a lot of guys leave the industry. You see a lot of banks get rid of their own in, in, internal default mortgage servicing operations. So you have this really consolidated industry that's genuinely a very good business. You know, when you think of a good business, it's an asset light business, something of an odd amongst a few players. You have some pricing power. Returns on capital are amazing. It's just a really cash-generative, lucrative business. And yes, for 10 years in a row, this industry has earned less money each year because the number of defaults keeps dropping. But an interesting thing happened in uh, Q2 this year. You had the first year-over-year increase in defaults in 10 years. And that's with interest rates at lows. That's with you know unemployment low. In the end, if property prices don't go up and people can't cash out refi, they start going down because there's always people who are stressed buyers that need cash out refi to keep the machine going. It's, it's like a shark, you know, it swims forward or it dies. And what we see in, in house prices is that it swims forward or it dies. So if you start seeing uh, property prices stagnate, you see an increase in defaults. If you see property prices decline, you see a bigger increase in defaults. If you see something bad happening in the economy, you see a bigger increase in defaults. And, you know, Q3 interest rates uh, dropped quite a lot. There was some more cash out refi. The number of defaults declined again, but interest rates backed off again the last couple of weeks. I, I think we're going to bounce along the bottom here until the crisis starts. But, you know, anytime you could buy a company at uh, 10 years uh, cyclical lows of earnings, and you know, I think Altasource, which uh, right now, what's the market cap? It's uh, a 280 million market cap. I think they earn in cash flow around 100 million next year. So you're paying two and 2.8 times cash flow for a business that has been shrinking for a while. I think it's probably going to be growing next year. At worst case, it shrinks a little, depending on what Aquin is going to do. Uh, Aquin is their biggest customer. But you're paying 2.8 times for a very high return on capital business. What we've seen in the rest of the market is that asset light service providers, I don't know, 15 to 25 times. I mean, this could be easily a 10-bagger just if it could prove that the uh, cash flow number kind of stabilizes. But what if uh, the default 
default start upticking. I mean, why can't Altasaurus have 200 million of cash flow? I mean, why can't you put a 20 multiple on that and it's a $4 billion company from 280 today? I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that's my uh, model or that's what I think happens, but sure. I mean, why can't it? They did 400 million a year for multiple years during the last cycle. And I don't think it gets as bad as last cycle, but you know, they, they've also taken a lot of costs out of the system. They've diversified the business. Think that the next crisis will be similar to the, to the previous one? No two crises are exactly the same. What I will say, though, when you look at uh, homeowner defaults or you look at just uh, home ownership, uh, last cycle, what they did to solve the problem, quote unquote, solve the problem, was just took rate steps. So everyone was able to cash out refinance. Everyone was able to lower their financial carrying cost. So the, your financial carrying cost is your interest payment and your uh, mortgage a- debt amortization. So they've taken that cost down by lowering interest rates. But what you've seen happen is that the total ownership price of a home includes other things, property tax, insurance, maintenance, you have condo fees and utilities and all this other stuff. So the percentage of the total ownership price that is your financial side, your mortgage, has actually declined versus the cost of the other stuff. And the other stuff is actually increasing quite rapidly as inflation goes up. So you're kind of having this situation where they can't take rates that much lower. And even if they do, you still have this amortization process. Meanwhile, on the you know the rest of that pie of the cost of owning a home, it keeps going up. Plus, you have home ownership in terms of multiples of income at one of the most stressed it's ever been in the history of humanity. Depending on which market you're in, it's actually worse than it was in 2008 or seven at the peak of the last cycle. So you know if you see things roll over, we see uh, you know inflation pick up a little. I, I don't think the Fed has as many tools this time to keep people in their homes. And it's very political. They'll try everything they can, but you know it, it can be reasonably bad. I mean the, the thing about last cycle is that a lot of uh, defaults cured themselves because rates went down. It, it's harder to have cures this time. I just don't know what it looks like, but I just know that we're way below trend line in terms of default rates right now, looking at this from a 25 or 50 year uh, historical numbers. So if we just move back to trend line, I mean, I think Altasaurus is a couple hundred dollar stock. And I like these sort of situations where you can look at an industry that, you know, has, it's, it's had a bad run for 10 years because defaults are down, but you can look at it and see that it's cheap, but you could also uh, construct a macro view that says that, you know, th- there's a tailwind because stocks t- stay cheap forever. That's just been what I've learned. You need a tailwind that unlocks it, or you need some sort of catalyst event, like a buyout or something like that. But when you have a macro tailwind, you can get huge, you know, a couple hundred percent, maybe thousand percent uh, returns. And especially when you're in asset light business, like uh, default mortgage servicing. So always look for what your tailwind is. You can't just have cheap. Got it. So, uh, is there a place in the world that you're looking into at the moment for value? Like uh, Greece, maybe Chile or Argentina or something like that? <laughs> No, everything's overvalued. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be value in Argentina. I'm sure there's value in Chile. I'm no expert in those markets. I really can't uh, g- give you enough color. Uh, I've really pared back my Greece exposure. You know, I'm up 20% in a few months. And it's, it's one of these things where, I don't know, in the end, the Greek economy really relies strongly on tourism. And when the economy goes bad globally and every metric I look at, every uh, PMI, everything you look, you could look at possibly is rolling over. Well, what's the first thing you cut when you have no money, your, your, your tourist budget. So if that's such a big piece of the economy, then it's going to get hurt too. And I don't know, I just don't see the opportunity there. If I had to say where I'd go look, I, I think the best sectors right now are 
foreign commodities. Unfortunately, they go down every day. So <laughs> every time every time you look at it, it's a little bit cheaper. But I think the best opportunities right now are commodities. There's been a real derp of uh, new supply in most industries. And commodities is this monolithic thing. So you have industrial commodities, you have energy, you have... So you, you have to look at them. But looking through the periodic table, there's, there's, there's places where there's real, real opportunity because it's been under investment. There's historic low valuations. And quite honestly, I think you're going to see um, inflation. And I also think you're going to see world governments try to do some stimulation. And the easiest thing to do for stimulus is bridges to nowhere. And that, you know, that chooses up a lot of commodities. Got it. Do you have a preferred one? Commodity? Yeah. Well, I think uranium is going to do great. Uh, I think you're going to, you know, if you, I think uranium prices, which are around 24 today, I, I think at some point in the next few years, you're going to be looking at a double or triple. Commodities are commodities to me. And I know a lot of people love gold right now, and I own some gold, but I don't know if gold's going to double or triple outside of some sort of hard fiscal, monetary, you know, geopolitical crisis. But I think uranium almost has to double or triple because that's the cost of producing this stuff. And, you know, when you have a deficit, no one's going to go back to producing unless they can earn some money. Sure, sure. And you also participated in the last uranium bull market, right? Oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> can you tell us what happened in, uh, at the time and how you played it? So the last uranium bull market was... So just taking a step back, I follow a lot of commodities. I love these commodities that have very long, drawn-out bear markets where the price of the commodity is below the cost of producing it. Everyone goes bankrupt. Uh, people stop producing. You have huge deficits. And no one really cares. And uranium was one of those where you had basically this uh, Russian uh, weapons-grade uranium flooding the market because of uh, a deal the U.S. made with the Russians. And so it effectively bankrupted everyone in the industry, or almost everyone. And so you had supplies get worked down. You had no new supply. You had no new producers. And then the price started going up. And the price started going up for a few reasons. One, utilities started getting concerned that uh, as the, the weapons program ended, there would be not enough uranium. Uranium, so they started increasing their own stockpiles. You had financial buyers show up and you know, a bunch of hedge funds bought uranium and try to front run the utilities that were also buying uranium. And then finally, you had some uh, real problems at uh, large mines, Cigar Lake, MacArthur River. And what it did was it panicked people that wouldn't be enough uranium. And of course, utilities are kind of slow and dumb and hedge funds are you know, in this to make money. So they just front ran the utilities. And as the price started going up, utilities started panicking, even though there's plenty of uranium out there when you really think Think about it. When you just look at the numbers, there's plenty of uranium. But the concern with the utilities is that uranium is such a big, small piece of operating the nuclear plant, yet, you know, all you have is a paperweight if you don't have uranium. So the utilities panicked and they massively increased their own stockpiles. And as I said, the hedge funds all front ran them the whole way up. So you had this real uh, kind of super cycle in commodity prices during a time when there's kind of plenty of uranium when you really think about it. I owned a bunch of junior producers. Uh, back then, a lot of these junior producers were $5 and $10 million companies. And when, when the cycle ended, they were a few billion dollar companies. <laughs> it, it was quite great. I owned 5 to 10% of most of them. There, there was nine uh, uranium stocks when I started this, when I, when I started investing in uranium. And I, I was you know just under filing limit on all of them, except Cameco. It, it was just a great run. Uh, I I think this cycle is going to be different because this cycle, you have true deficits. You know, there's still above ground stocks, but uh, they're getting run down pretty fast. And you know, I think the, the difference this cycle in terms of how to play it is I think you should stay away from the juniors because a lot of them are quite fairly valued or maybe even overvalued. I mean, it's kind of odd to think that you could have a non-producing junior with a couple hundred million market cap. Uh, I don't care how good the grades are. Another kind of commodity. Uh, what are your views on shipping? 
I think we're in about the second inning of a super cyclone shipping. Just going back to you know what I said about uranium or other commodities, and I really do like cyclical industries, is that you look at these and you need to have a, a process where everyone goes bankrupt. There's a winnowing of the industry. There's a crisis. A lot of capital gets destroyed. And that's, that's shipping for you. For 10 years, uh, everyone lost money. That's because people ordered too many vessels, uh, 2006 to 13 or so, and just vessels kept hitting the market until about 1617. And then no one ordered any more vessels because they had no more money to order vessels with. And what you've had now is a lot of scrapping. You've had an uh, increase in demand because you know shipping transport volume grows every year. And it's kind of caught up with uh, the existing supply. But what's quite unique is you have this uh, gating function called IMO 2020. IMO 2020 says that uh, going forward, you have to burn uh, low sulfur fuel that has 0.5% uh, sulfur, or you can install a scrubber. And there's been a lot of debate as to the effects of IMO 2020 and if scrubbers are the right trade. And you know, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on that because I honestly don't have that strong of an opinion. What I will say, though, is that it is a gating function. I think you'll see a lot of older vessels that are marginal vessels getting scrapped. I think you'll see vessels that are older do some slow steaming, so they take some supply out of the market. I think you see a lot of disruption and chaos. Uh, you know, Think of it this way. You take your car and you put diesel in it, and it's not a diesel car. I mean, just think what happens to your car. And I think you're going to see a lot of that as people start using VLSFO blends when uh, you know they haven't really thought through the implications. You can see uh, ships stalling out. You can see lots of lack of fuel in ports. I think you just see a lot of chaos. And that, and chaos is very good for shipping. The other great thing about shipping is it's a way to play geopolitical volatility. I think we're entering a cycle of increased geopolitical volatility and balkanization. And it's not just Trump kind of tweeting at people. It's uh, every other country having their own little uh, balkanization and you know changes in trade routes. And every time you change trade routes, you uh, make things less efficient, which means you need more vessels, which puts upward pressure on uh, charter rates. So we're in a situation and you know a lot of these shipping stocks have now doubled. I, I've been talking about shipping on my blog uh, since the start of the year. So, you know, if you bought pretty much anything, you doubled your money. But I think we're in the very early stages because while charter rates are up and these guys are now covering their cash costs, they're not really making any money. They're certainly not making enough money to pay down much debt and definitely not enough to start buying new vessels. Don't forget, when you have a vessel, that amortization, the depreciation is real. It's not that something that you can just add back and ignore. In 20 years, your vessel gets scrapped or maybe even less. And so you've had a lot of these vessels that have already used up uh, a lot of their depreciation potential and people need new vessels at some point, but they're not making enough money to replace the vessels. And so I really do think that you're going to see charter rates go up quite a lot more. I think IMO will be the catalyst that pushes rates up. And if you look at past shipping cycles, these things don't just double. I mean, they don't usually stop at five times. They, they go to 10 or 20 or more. If you look at the last cycle, you know, you had companies like uh, Frontline that were 50 baggers. And I mean, we're talking about 50 baggers on multi-billion dollar companies. So it, it's a lot of value created here. And uh, I just think it's the best place to be. My, my uh, largest position is a company called Scorpio. They're uh, a product tanker company. They're the largest pure play product tanker company in the world. And IMO 2020 will increase the demand for low sulfur fuel. The, uh, low sulfur fuel goes on a product tanker. I assume that rates will go up quite dramatically as a result. And I think Scorpio will make a lot of money. Awesome. Uh, the tankers are the, the preferred way to play this? Yeah. I mean, look, I think every sector of shipping will do well. You know, car carriers and you know, dry bulk, it'll all do well because the same factor in IMO 2020 is at play where older tonnage gets scrapped. But what you're going to see with uh, product 
product tankers is that uh, the need for uh, moving uh, diesel and MGO, and I, I think you're going to see a large increase in the demand side there, which should dramatically push up charter rates well beyond what you're going to see in, say, you know, dry bulk, where maybe you know demand actually doesn't grow very fast. Uh, you know, dirty tankers may actually see some demand destruction as you know less high sulfur product gets moved around and more low sulfur product. I really think you're going to see it there, and then in uh, LPG, which has already done quite well as well. But when you think about this, I mean, just to show you the operating leverage on a company like Scorpio. If, if uh, LR rates are about 50000 and uh, MR rates are about 30000 over the course of the year, Scorpio makes $25 a share. That's, that's cash in your pocket. It's a $30 stock today. Will rates get there? It's hard to say, but rates were well past there last month. They've pulled back a little this month. I expect they spike again into winter just because you have a strong seasonal in the winter. Sure. You know, I don't know. Maybe they make $10 this year, so it's three times. But you're coming into this company even today at a discount to net asset value. And given the high returns on capital, it really should trade at a premium to net asset value. Got it. So, Kapi, again, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming to this program. Yeah, happy to. And uh, it's good to know that I'm not alone in my views. <laughs> Which views? Which views? Well, all of them. Um, the SoftBank, the private equity mania, the, the shipping industry, commodities, um, pretty, much, uh, pretty much all of them. <laughs> well, let's hope we're right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's an important thing. Awesome, Guppy. Listen, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support, and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. Listener.